Happy Easter. My name is Chris. I'm the teaching pastor here. It's good to see you. Some of you I haven't seen since Christmas. I'm not. I'm, oh, I'm not allowed. Okay. I'm not. I'm not hating. I'm glad you're here. This is great. It's like a family reunion. If you have your Bibles, you can go uh, ahead and get those out. We're going to be in John three sixteen. I'll read a bit of verse seventeen, but predominantly we'll be in verse sixteen. While you're turning there, let me say a couple things. We are going to, as you know, going to keep the kids above nursery age in the service today. Uh, if you're one of our first through fifth graders, just let me talk with you for a second. All right, my name is Chris, or Mr. Chris. I'm glad you're with us today. Um, you bring an energy and a joy that we need. So as, as you get older, you kind of have a tendency to get a bit crustier and a bit more nervous. So your energy and joy helps remind us of some really important things. So I'm personally really glad you're here with me today. My expectation is that you're going to do great in here today. Uh, now, parents, let me talk with you. Moms and dads, I'm sure you have a kind of a standard of conduct for your children, and I want you to administer that standard of conduct, but I have no expectation that your child will be perfect. All right? I just, I just say that so we can breathe and not get nervous that, you're, that your kid is squirmy or, or talking here. All right? You know, because they're in second grade, my expectation is that they'll act like a second grader. So we love kids. I'm not going to go long, so feel free to get up and do potty breaks or run around in the foyer breaks or whatever you need to do, okay? All right, so today we're probably in the best-known scripture in the Bible, John 3.16. Even if you don't have much background in a church, you've seen this verse waved at you. If you've ever watched a football game or a basketball game, right, it's a verse that even those who aren't necessarily believers in Christ have at least a frame of reference for this verse. This verse is about love, right? Now, we have been trained by everything around us, from movies to sitcoms to songs, on what love is. And our, and our modern cultural idea of love is a shallow, hollow, empty, impossible-to-feel-safe-in type of emotive love that looks down on deep, genuine, biblical love, and would oftentimes view it as unhealthy. Let me explain what I mean. Predominantly, and I want to say predominantly, that, that means not everyone, but mostly, love is seen as purely emotive and can be fallen into and out of, depending really on how, on how happy the other person is making us. So, really, we don't love the other person, we love us. That's what, that's what we love. That's not love. Love isn't you make me happy, so I, so I love you, that is conditional. And that's you loving you. That's not you loving someone else. So you, you take this idea of love to mean a, a simple kind of emotional fluttering of the heart. Well, well, how could you possibly feel safe in that? You know, Listen to people talk all the time. They, they just fell out of love. I just don't love him or her anymore. In fact, the thing that's probably most frowned upon in our culture when it comes to love is someone who loves with their will, what the Hebrews called agape love. It's love of the will. It's, I'm not going anywhere. And don't romanticize that. That's not rose petals and violins and candles being lit. This is, I've seen the ugly side of you and I'm staying. Yet we would view that in our culture predominantly as unhealthy. Surely God doesn't want that for you. Your, your life is so short. You know, are you really going to spend it like that? In our culture, love is flippant. It can, it can shift and change at any given moment. It's not sustaining and it's not safe. 
If love is purely emotional and can shift and change, then what's to stop Cupid in his little diaper from, from lighting me up when I go to the store after this? And all of a sudden, I don't, I don't love Katie anymore. I love that woman I saw in aisle four buying peanut M&Ms, you know? What could I do? It's Cupid. I just fell out of love. You know, like you can't fight love, right? That's the terrifying kind of love. We don't even have language for love anymore. I know because we love pizza, we love our dog, we love Easter, we love that movie, you know, Princess Bride or whatever. Love that movie. We love the restaurant we went to last night, and yet you would still say you love your spouse and your family. We don't even have language that would allow love to be deep for us. So most of the time when we say, I love, fill in the blank, what we're saying is, this thing makes me happy. This is a weak form of love, and it will not sustain. Now here's why I'm even saying any of this to you. I'm saying this because if we don't understand what love actually is, and if our understanding of love doesn't have an anchor to it, when we begin to talk about God's love for us, we'll feel like we have to measure up. We feel like we have to do everything right in order for God to love us. Because our culture teaches us that love has some conditions behind it. That we are loved as long as we can perform accordingly. That's not love as the Bible teaches it. So, so it's important for us to move away from this kind of popular, predominant understanding of love and get into a biblical version of love. And yes, I want emotions. right? I want my chest to flutter when Katie walks in the room, and that still happens. I not only love that woman, but I like her. But there are some days that that's agape. And I'm well aware that it's the same for Kate towards me. Right? I have no illusions otherwise. On that day when you're exhausted and just being the worst parts of you, you need what you need is agape love. You need someone who goes, yeah, I've seen that. It's ugly, but I love you. I'm not going anywhere. So with me kind of setting up love that way, let's look at our, this very popular verse, John 3.16. In fact, many of you probably won't even need to look at it. I'll read it out of the NIV version. It starts, For God so loved the world. If you write or highlight things in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline, highlight, circle the word so. It's a great word. For God so loved the world. As in there was this huge volume of love God had for the world. It wasn't a little bit of love. He loved, he so loved Not the planet earth, but the people of the world. The next part of this text says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So what you have here is the love of God initiating toward us. For God so loved the world that he moved towards those on earth. He moved towards us. Here's why that's important. I am well aware that out before me are people who are struggling in one area of life or another. Right? There, are, there are addictions in this place. There are fears in this place. There are people struggling with depression in this place. There are those of you with marriages that are difficult. Maybe, you, maybe even this morning, you know, you got the kids dressed. It stressed you out, but you got them in their cool new gear. Somebody probably got screamed at. You, you got here just in time. You argued as you pulled into the parking lot, and then you walked into this place, barely friends at all, wondering how much longer you could do it. And somebody said, Happy Easter, and you said... He is risen indeed. Hallelujah, brother. Yet, the reality of your life, the reality of your marriage is that it's broken, and you feel lonely, and you feel desperate, and you feel angry, and here you are. There are those in here who struggle in regards to 
sexual purity. There are those in here who are flirting with people who aren't their spouses, and on and on and on I could go. What we just saw here is that God, in his initiating love, leaned toward us, not away from us. He's not angry at us. He's not frustrated with us. He's not waiting for us to get our act together before he loves us. We have such a hard time believing that, don't we? The irony is that the most consistent accusation made against Christ in the Bible is that he loved folks like us. It wasn't just his teaching that said, come to me, you sinners. It was his life that said, Zacchaeus, you drunk little thief, get down. I'm eating at your house. Right? That's the Christ of the Bible. I mean, the woman of ill repute walks into the room and begins to weep on his feet and washes them. And the crowd, including his own disciples, said, well, if he only knew who that woman was, what's Jesus' response? It's love. He said, what, what she is doing is beautiful. So beautiful that wherever the gospel is preached, they'll tell her story. You fellas get to be the morons in that story. Right? Congratulations. Doesn't exactly say that. But. but I bet the disciples would have loved to kind of rewind on that one. huh? We we're just kidding, Jesus. We we're kidding. So you've got Jesus who says, okay, you're broken, you're hurting, and you're screwed up. I'm coming toward you with love and help. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So God in his leaning in, meeting us where we are, right in the middle of our junk, sends Christ to be the righteousness we would need. Because your righteousness, you at your best, is never going to be adequate to cancel the record of debt. You're never going to be good enough to save yourself, ever. That's why God, in his great love with which he loved us, leaned in. He was not repulsed by us, but came to the rescue. In fact, John 3.17 is going to say, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Christ has not come to condemn, but rather to remove from us condemnation. Now, how did he do that? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He comes, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, and lives a, a perfect, righteous life that, that, that you and I, by the grace of God, are given. It's a gift. Jesus' life is counted as ours. So that when God looks at us, he actually sees the righteousness of Jesus. Then the crucifixion of Jesus. Good Friday is the moment when all of our sin and rebellion, past, present, and future, are put on Christ and he absorbs them fully. Let me tell you my favorite thing about Good Friday. My, my favorite thing about Good Friday is that God publicly, for all time, outed me. He just completely outed me. And now that outing has set me free. Here's what I mean. God publicly acknowledges Chris Holm is going to need a Savior. He's going to fall short. He's going to be far from perfect. He's going to need me. God outed me. So I get to stand up here and I don't have to pretend. Right? I get to sleep well tonight. Maybe you come back, maybe you don't. But I'm going to sleep really well tonight. I don't have to act like more than I am. I can just go, you know, sometimes I still doubt. I have to preach the gospel to myself a lot. I still a lot of times have a hard time believing God loves me like I am. 
I still keep thinking he's going to love me more as I get my act together. Anybody else? I have to memorize scripture and quote those scriptures to myself often. I got set be free by what? By Good Friday, because God already told you I'm broken in different ways. Also, God told me you were broken too. Now we don't have to pretend. How great is that? God says, I'm just going to let you, everybody know everybody's a mess. Bam, right there. That's why we call it Good Friday. Good Friday, because on it we are outed and our sins are absorbed into the cross of Christ. So here we are, brothers and sisters, loved by God, God leaning into us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever, or whosoever, if you're King Jamesing it, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now a couple of things to note here. First and foremost, notice not everyone is going to benefit from the Lord initiating his love towards us. It says, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but will have eternal life. Now, eternal life means a couple things. Yes, in the future and for eternity, but we also learn in John 10.10 that he's talking about the fullness of life now. It's not just that we get heaven, but that even now Christ and our belief in Christ grants us fullness of life now. We get to reign in life now. Now, let's talk about belief. When it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Uh, It's not, this belief here is not intellectual assent. You understand what I mean? It's not just, oh yeah, I believe that there was a man named Jesus. To believe in Jesus in John 3.16 is to believe he is who he says he is and he did what he said he did. I think far too many of us believe in Jesus like we believe in JFK. He's kind of this historic figure who did some cool stuff and died an untimely death. The other thing I see happening is that it's it's kind of a cultural norm to believe in Jesus. People are like, well, yeah, of course I believe in Jesus. I'm American. You know? No, belief is that I believe he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did. Now, all of a sudden, this puts us in a bit of a bind because Jesus says he's God. Let me, let me kind of translate this in a way I think some of you probably won't like, but I'm going to love you enough to say. Believing in Jesus means you've declared war on the sin in your life and that you're serious about growing in the knowledge of God. If those things are not true about you, if there's no seriousness about the sin in your life and no desire for growth in understanding who God is and who Jesus is, I don't think you believe in him. You believe in Jesus like you believe in some sort of historic figure but you do not believe in him in regards to eternal life. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, how can we, how can we have confidence in this? How can we really believe this, this to be true and to latch on to it? Well, I'm, I'm going on 15 years with my wife, Katie, and nine years with kids. And I've more than likely broken around 500 promises to those girls over that time period. I've broken some of those promises because I'm forgetful or because I'm a sinful jerk. Right? You can judge me if you want, but that has happened. The other, the other reason is I'm not all-powerful. I'm not all-knowing, and I'm not everywhere at once. So, so sometimes I've broken promises because I don't control the universe. For example, I was late for my daughter's fourth birthday party because I locked my keys in my car in Cleveland. Right? 
There, there have been promises I've been unable to keep simply because I'm not God. We are limited, but we have a God who never breaks his promises. Our confidence in God's initiating love for us is Jesus Christ. And that's really what we're here to celebrate this morning. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, if Jesus dies on the cross but isn't resurrected, how do we know all of our sins are paid for? If, if Jesus dies on the cross but isn't raised from the dead, how do, we, how do we know sin has been defeated and death is really dead? How do we know? We don't without the resurrection. The resurrection stands for us as believers, as the proof and completion, the receipt. When, when something is paid for, you get a receipt as proof, right? The resurrection is the receipt that our salvation has been paid for. There are a lot of people here who don't believe you can ever be free from the sins of your past or never be free from your failures, never be free from your inadequacies. You've been taught or you're teaching yourself or both that these are not things you can ever put, really put behind you. They're not things you're ever going to really be able to live down. And God says, no. On the cross... Jesus Christ paid, and I have given you your receipt, the resurrection. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, God stamped, paid in full across the pages of history in letters anybody who will open their eyes can see. God said, this payment is sufficient. You never have to pay for those things ever again. Therefore, we're confident that God, in his initiating love, has made a way for us to be reconciled that he is for us, that our eternity is secure, and that we have everlasting life. The Bible says that our last breath, we will throw off what is perishable, this body we're wearing right now, and we'll put on what's imperishable. On that day, 1 Corinthians 15 says we actually mock death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? All that is sad will become untrue. We put our hope there, in Jesus, in the promises he has made. This is our message. This is all we have. In fact, when we gather here week in and week out, this is all we talk about. I don't, I don't know if you, if you notice this. I just have one sermon. I just keep preaching it out of different scriptures. You want to talk about marriage? We have to go here. You want to talk about raising kids? We have to go here. You want to talk about money? We have to go here. You want to talk about breaking the power of addiction? We have to go here. You want to talk about freedom? It's here. You want to talk about how to end depression? We have to go here. Over and over again, the solution of all human need is found in the person in the work of Christ Jesus and his resurrection. So when we come together, this is what we do week in and week out. We sing about this. Then we open up the word of God and we talk about this to help us remember his promises. Jesus always keeps his promises. We are promised a resurrection. We got a resurrection. The Jesus who loved you enough to die for you is risen. Amen? Amen. Hey, we're going to send you out of here with uh, something special today. Is that all right? The music team wants to head up here and get set up. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to turn it over to Chuck. Then we'll have a choir that's going to do a song. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your initiating love. Just knowing full well who we are and how we've come here and how we've walked into this this place. You are good and you do good, Father. I pray that you would 
encourage our hearts. Thank you for Easter. It's through your beautiful name we pray. Everybody say, amen.